Hello and welcome to another edition of ITC Entertain the World podcast with myself, Jazz Wiseman. And today, as always, I'm joined by my two minkies, Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Evening, Jazz. Well, thank you. Yeah, hi, Jazz. All good. I've had my minky nuts. As you've probably guessed from the music you've just heard, Today, we are talking about the film Return of the Pink Panther. This is quite an interesting ITC film because in the run of the series of Pink Panther movies, this is the only one that came under ITC stewardship. It was produced and released in 1975, sort of after the run of Lou's big successful TV hits of the 60s and early 70s and it was part of his move into the world of film production now we've talked about a previous blake edwards movie here on our podcast the tamarind seed which we all thought was very much underrated and came in for a lot of unfair criticism we think it's worth another shot i think the same is probably true here with return of the pink panther if you buy the DVD, or I should imagine now Blu-ray box set, of all the Pink Panther movies, you'll notice that this one is omitted from that collection. And that's because MGM and United Artists, who collaborated on that DVD set, they haven't ever licensed this back from ITC. So every time you see a DVD or Blu-ray release of this film, you know it's kind of a standalone. And I think it's quite an interesting movie. There's a long history of the Pink Panther, the whole project that we should really discuss now at the start. There'd been two very successful Blake Edwards, Peter Sellers, Henry Mancini, that triumvirate. There's the Pink Panther itself and a shot in the dark. But there were some other movies that were nothing to do with those guys made in the 60s. So it's kind of got a very strange tapestry this collection of films hasn't it yeah it's got a very sort of checkered past i suppose you'd say because re really the, the first two the pink panther and a shot in the dark are even with the clouseau characters they're fairly conventional comedy thrillers as the years pass we take in the alan arkin version inspector clouseau which i haven't seen for a long time but i remember it as being far more dramatic than any of the other panther movies there was a long hiatus with Sellers picking up the, the Clouseau character. It's a very sort of interesting sequence to explore. Well, we've also got the fact that, of course, it was going to be Peter Ustinov as Clouseau in the first film. And in Henry Mancini's autobiography, he points out that Sellers only arrived in Rome on the Friday and they were beginning filming on the following Monday. And so Sellers and Edwards only had three days to talk through what they were going to do with the character to do some rehearsing mm. there can't be many sort of movie scenarios where you've got dramatic last minute change like that and then of course the second film wasn't going to be a pink panther film at all and wasn't going to involve blake edwards so it was going to be peter sellers playing a sort of magistrate in a sort of adaptation of a sort of french theater play and uh, Sellers wasn't happy with the script. Edwards was asked to take over and he said he'd only do it if he could turn it into a Pink Panther film. So there's all sorts of bizarre things going on, isn't there? Also, to add into the mix is that film The Party, 
which again is Blake Edwards, Henry Mancini and Peter Sellers, which it's kind of got a lot of Pink Pantherisms in it. You can't sort of look at these movies without even thinking or mentioning that film. As you implied a moment ago, Jazz, the bedrock of all of these movies, including The Party, is that triumvirate of Edwards, Sellers and Mancini, because obviously the familiarity of the music, the theme tune, is known worldwide. And so much of these films rely on Mancini's music. And then you've got that really sort of taut relationship between Sellers and Edwards, which what you see on screen travels that really fine line between perfection and disaster because of the way these two men worked. And, and I get the sort of feeling that Mancini was very much a, a more calming influence. Yeah, no, I think very much so. He says again in his book that at the end of a day's work, Edwards would come up to him and he'd say to Blake, how did it go? And he'd say, oh, don't ask. But Mancini adds that somehow they always patched it up and went ahead and that they realised that it needed their two separate talents to sort of weld together Cluso, that Cluso wouldn't exist without the two of them somehow making, you know, smoking the pipe of peace or whatever. Yes, there's a kind of love-hate relationship, but in a way they had to make it work because the magic is on screen. In terms of Edwards and Sellers, it's almost sibling rivalry. People said there was a heck of a lot of envy on Sellers' part because Edwards seemed to be the sort of character that Peter always wanted to be. He was well-established. He was well set up. He, he was clearly part of the jet set. He had his stable relationship with his wife, Julie Andrews. There's all sorts of indicators like when Peter, after investing heavily in houses in the UK, in a mansion in the UK, suddenly decided he wanted a, a chalet in Stad, where they filmed a lot of the, the Return of the Pink Panther because Blake had a chalet there and there was a heck of a lot of tension. There was a heck of a lot of familiarity. It was a, a relationship as tight as a piano wire. In certain aspects of the Return of the Pink Panther, there were points where they would only speak to each other through intermediaries. It said that um, they fell out on a prior film. So I naturally assumed that it, the party, because that comes between the Panther series, as you observed, Jazz, really the big fallout was at the end of A Shot in the Dark and, and they refused to ever work together again. We mentioned the Tamarind seed at the beginning there. Now, this movie, the Return of the Pink Panther came around partly because of the film The Tamarind Seed. When Lou was trying to get Julie Andrews on board to do something for ITC, and obviously eventually she got, he got him to sign up, so she did the Julie Andrews Hour and she did a, a TV special, and of course she did the, the movie that we were talking about. Part of that deal was that with her husband, Blake Edwards, they could have a multi-picture deal. And that didn't kind of quite work out, did it? No. Well, they did the Tamarind Seed, which didn't achieve what they all wanted it to achieve. Edwards had a second film lined up to be financed by ACC, ATV, whoever, ICC. But the film he wanted to make was something called Rachel and the Stranger, no doubt probably featuring his wife again, because this was his big thing. And it was going to be set in Alaska, and Lou absolutely hated it. So Lou, scratching his head as to what to do, offered Blake Edwards a buyout on the second movie. And Edwards initially accepted that. 
But then 24 hours later, he turned around and said to Lou, look, I've got to have another film. The logic being that if he had a buyout, people in Hollywood would assume that the tamarind seed was so bad, he'd been dropped effectively, and that would do his reputation no good. So he was desperate to have something else to make. That ends up being the film we're here to talk about. But again, I mean, we've talked so many times on these podcasts about how Lou Grade manages to do the impossible. We talked with the persuaders about the fact that Tony Curtis's agent had said, you'll never get him to do TV. And Lou Grade sort of on the next flight out there. And he's persuaded him within an hour of meeting him. And we've got a similar thing here, really, because everyone was advising him, don't do this. You know, you'll never get Peter Sellers and Blake Edwards back together. Even if you do, the film will be a disaster. And once again, Lou Grade ignores the noise and sort of mm. goes with his gut instinct, doesn't he? Yeah, and I think there he probably enjoyed the two what I call original real films, you know, not the ones that were sort of after by other directors and starring different actors, because I know you described them as kind of standard sort of comedy capers smudge. But I think for the time, again, I quickly watched them just before we came on to this. And they've got that 60s magic in the way that they look. I'm sure it's in the film stock. I'm sure it's in the lighting. I'm sure it's in the set design. It's all of that. When you look at it and you can't help but warm to it just because of all of those things. And actually, they are funny. And there's some great stuff in both of those films and great supporting casts. I think they're a little bit more than a kind of a run-of-the-mill comedy caper. I think they're pretty good movies, to be fair. No, when I say routine, I didn't mean sort of routine in, in that matter-of-fact way. I meant in terms of there's more drama and more plot when you compare mm. it to the, to the one that we're going to talk about. Pink Panther is a wonderful 60s caper movie. Like you say, it's a riot of colour. There's something in the stock. There's something in the design, the brightly coloured party sequence and all that. Shot in the Dark has got a beautifully continental feel to it, mm. even though it was only done at MGM, was it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. The character evolves in the first one in Pink Panther. Cluzo is very much a supporting player. He catches your attention, but the sort of focus is on David Niven. In the second one, we're starting to develop into the more popular image of Cluzo. But there are certain aspects to the character which are very different. I think even though those first two films are only a year apart, for me, Shot in the Dark is far closer to the return of the Pink Panther. In a sense, it's introduced all of those main characters, Dreyfus, Francois, Cato. We've already got quite a lot of slapstick going on, in the best sense of the word. And my understanding is, I mean, obviously, Blake Edwards, his step-grandfather, was a silent movie director. And Peter Sellers was also a huge fan of silent movies. And you can really see, I think, in a shot in the dark, how it's, the character has evolved completely from that first film. Yeah, and you're right there about the first one being more focused on David Niven and, in effect, Clouseau and Sellers being the supporting role, whereas, like you say, in A Shot in the Dark, he became the star there. And like you say, Rodney, there is definitely the forming of the idea of this is where, in effect, franchise, I don't want to use that word, because it's not really a franchise, but in some ways it is. That's where the franchise is kind of sort of set up. The sort of running gags, which I think yeah. is one of the things I love about Return of the Pink Panther. 
you've already got those. I don't know how many times Clouseau is arrested in a shot in the dark outside the prison mm. for sort of being a balloon seller, street artist, hunter. And then, of course, he's arrested for being nude at one point. Mm. Those sort of running gags. You finish a shot in the dark and you do wonder, where do they go from here? Because it's already quite slapstick. To borrow from jazz and use the franchise term, a shot in the dark is to the Pink Panther what Goldfinger was to the Bond. It's the template. But the other side of that coin is, as Rodney has observed there, where do you go? We should talk really about how this came around for Lou Grade and ITC. But also the finance there, because there's a really great book called Last of a Kind, The Sinking of Lou Grade by Quentin Falk and Dominic Prince. And it came out, I think, in the mid 80s. And it's got quite a bit about the Pink Panther in it because it's predominantly about Lou's step from television into the film industry and how basically that sunk ITC. And that's obviously a long, long story that we're not going to go into. But in the book, it describes the whole thing about United Artists meeting with Lou and United Artists thought that Lou was absolutely crazy to touch this. So much so, the amount that they charged for him to license the character was $25,000. That's all. And the return that they wanted on any film success was 5%. Now, if you don't know about film royalties and all of those things, you might think, oh, why are those numbers important? $25,000 at that time, which would have been 74, the pound was worth more than $2. It was, it was probably like £10,000 to license mm -hmm. that. And then 5% is a ridiculously small amount for any film royalty. So Lude not only got it cheap, I think he knew that Actually, if he could get Sellers and he could get Edwards together again, that magic could happen again. I think he took a great leap of faith, but I also think he knew that deep down there was definitely another great movie in those two with Mancini. Fortune played a major role in this because Peter had had a string of films hopping from film to film to film some of which weren't even theatrically released. They had things like The Party, I Love You, Alice B. Tuckless, The Magic Christian, A Day at the Beach, Hoffman, Girl in My Soup, Where Does It Hurt, The Blockhouse, The Optimists, Soft Beds, Hard Battles. And then he finished the run with a couple of sort of goon show style films, uh, Ghost in the Noonday Sun and The Great McGonagall. So Peter was long past his zenith. He'd really hit his nadir, so Peter was up for something, and Blake Edwards, similarly, he'd had things like Darling Lily, which had been quite the flop, the Wild Rovers, and unfortunately, the Tamarind Seed. So everybody was needing, wanting to raise their game, so that made them fairly viable to Lou in terms of offers to be made. We've sort of got what I'm going to call the Peter Gunn effect as well, because Peter Stellars was a huge Peter Gunn fan. Loved Henry Mancini's sort of modern jazz. Obviously, Blake Edwards has already got a working relationship with Lou Grade. And so did Henry Mancini, in a way, having done the music for the main theme for Man of the World. In a weird way, Inspector Clouseau is almost a bit of a, a modern take on Peter Gunn. 
Here's this inspector for a new decade now who malfunctions in all the way that Peter Gunn works well. Somebody actually said that in creating Clouseau, Blake Edwards was basically sabotaging his own hero, this Peter Gunn figure. So I think you're probably spot on there, Rodney. I suppose, in a way, that is why, with those three back at the helm, together, there's a chance this could work again. I think, like you say, Smudge, they all needed another hit. I think when Blake Edwards had seen Lou and, and, you know, got his chance to do his second movie, which obviously became this, Lou had sent him away. He'd been at the Julie Andrews show and he was sort of hanging around and sort of interfering and sort of getting on director's nerves and things like that. So Lou had sent him away and sort of said, develop a format. And from what I read, the plan was that they were going to make a mini series of The Pink Panther. Return of the Pink Panther wasn't the plan at that time. The plan was to make a TV miniseries, a bit like the Zoo Gang, as Inspector Clouseau. And that didn't quite happen and didn't quite work out. So basically the scripts or the scripting ideas were reformatted and this became the basis of the Return of the Pink Panther. There are various stories floating around about the genesis of the project. Another one I've read is Peter was doing that Benson Hedges commercial with Spike Milligan, where they, they're planning a robbery and the gold bars aren't gold bars, they're gold packets of cigarettes. And Peter played his character in a sort of Clouseau style, apparently. That gave him the personal impetus, allegedly, to bring back the character. I suppose we should also bear in mind that throughout all of this time, you've got the Pink Panther show, the cartoon show on TV in Britain and in the States. It's phenomenally popular. And of course, it's the first cartoon, The Pink Think, which is the only Pink Panther film that wins an Oscar. But I certainly remember at that time in the 70s, watching that show every week and wanting to go and see The Return of the Pink Panther in the cinema because of the cartoon. So in a way, The Pink Panther never goes quite out of the public eye, does it? No, I think you're right there as well. I mean, because we all, all three of us grew up with that Pink Panther animated cartoon series, which, as you say, it means that the, it never drops from the spotlight. Those cartoons were aimed at a younger audience, but they were quite adult in some ways. The gags weren't so silly that they were like for sort of, say, five or six year olds. There was some adult comedy in those as well that children wouldn't have got, but the adults did. There's even what I think is a hilarious gag in the film where quite early on, the guard is knocked out twice by the door slamming in his face. And that's taken straight out of the pink think. Possibly even more relevant point about the Pink Panther cartoon show was that they actually developed a separate strand for the inspector. Mm -hmm. So that Clouseau figure was always forefront as well. Another advantage for Lou Grade was the fact that he had sellers in his agency contacts so he could get direct access to him and, and speak personally, which was a huge bonus. Where I lost track a little bit earlier, all I was going to say was a lot of the gadgets which in Peter Gunn are seen as sort of rather cool things, like he has a very elaborate cigarette lighter and he's often seen playing pool. All of those things are things that become part of Clouseau's malfunctioning. So he sets fire to his raincoat with a lighter. And we have the disaster with the pool table where he rips the whole of it up. 
and I think that's sort of what I was sort of talking about earlier. So I'm just going to quickly go through some of the cast in this film because I think, as Rodney suggested earlier, some of the characters are sort of reappearing. It's a sensational cast. Obviously, besides Peter Sellers, we've got Christopher Plummer, Catherine Schell, who I think at that time looks sensational and is superb in this film. Herbert Lom, who's always good. Peter Arn, who's another one of our ITC favourites. Peter Jeffrey, Georgia Aslan, David Lodge, who doesn't have many scenes, but when he does, he absolutely shines. Graham Stark, Eric Pullman, Andre Moran, Burkwick, of course, as Cato, Victor Spinetti, John Bluthall, Mike Grady. I mean, when you look at that cast, and we talk about these people a lot, that's a very, very strong cast. David Lodge had been in the previous one as the gardener and now comes back as the chauffeur, which I thought was lovely because it's that's not a reoccurring character, but it is a sort of nod and a wink, isn't it? As you say, there's some good, strong ITC casting here and some, some nice stereotyping that works, basically, for this film. Do we know if David Niven was asked if he wanted to reprise the role of Sir Charles Lytton or not? I can't find any evidence anywhere of that. I was been trying in reading and books and stuff, but absolutely nothing. And of course, Christopher Plummer will have been known to Julie Andrews because of the sound of music. So it probably if David Niven was unavailable, that might be where the link came from. She might have just said to Blake Edwards, oh, you know, have you thought about Christopher? We don't know. I can't find anything anywhere with that, sadly. But I think Christopher Plummer is brilliant in it. Do we know if Sellers had any sort of finger in the script or script approval? Again, I can't find anything on that. All I can find on the script was, as I say, it started out as a mini TV series that got sort of rejected, but some of the sort of skits in it made it into the film. So I imagine between Blake Edwards and Peter Sellers, they probably worked around the script. Rodney was asking before we were on air whether the Alan Arkin Inspector Clouseau was part of the franchise, for want of a better word. Yes, it was, because it was still produced by the Mirish Corporation, even though Sellers and Edwards weren't available to do it. And we've got a crossover in that Frank Waldman scripted on both Inspector Clouseau and contributed to this movie as well. That movie's not in the actual DVD set, though, is it? I mean, I'm talking about the MGM one that came out it was probably 15, 20 years ago now. I mean, uh, again, I've only seen some of it on YouTube. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it all. What I saw, I wasn't particularly impressed with, to be fair. I threw the question out there a while ago, simply in the sense that to me, you've got to have Edward Sellers and Mancini. You've got to have the sort of mm. the trio. And when you haven't got any of them, it's not what I think of as the Pink Panther. No. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit like the original Casino Royale with Bond. It never got considered part of the Bond franchise, but it was a Bond film. And I look at that Pink Panther movie in a similar way. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting diversion. I haven't seen it for a long time, but it is very different. So if we talk about the film, it's kind of not really as such a continual story 
in the way that there's a start, a middle and an end. It's almost like there's a number of set pieces, if you see what I mean. And it all revolves around a series, I would say, of scenes that are five, ten minutes long that form that gag. And then there's a kind of maybe a little linking shot or something. And then it forms to the next run of gags, if you see what I mean. The sort of Christopher Plummer type scenes are very sort of straight and there's not little humour in there, but it, it's not like when Sellers is on screen, when it's actually pure farce. It's a single strand plot, which is essentially, as you say, a hanging rail on which to put the set pieces. And that marks the significant difference between the two films that went before. I mean, here you've got the basic jewel stolen, jewel to be recovered plot. And the only subplot, in essence, is the Dreyfus subplot as Dreyfus, as his breakdown, spoiler alert, attempts to assassinate Clouseau. Which had already happened in a previous film as well. I suppose, for me, the museum scenes help tie it together. Because we obviously begin with one pre-titles. We've got a second one post-titles. We've then, of course, got Clouseau arriving, a slapstick effect at the museum. And then the film ends with the museum piece. So I suppose that's the closest we've got to providing a bit of connective tissue, isn't it? And actually, I think the museum scenes work very well. To be honest, I think all the scenes pretty much work really well. The best scene for me is always going to be like when... Cluso pretends to be the telephone exchange man and goes to fix the telephones. And that whole running sequence of that he breaks the doorbell and then Catherine Shell answers and, and Catherine Shell cannot keep a straight face. And that is her genuinely. She admits in, I can't remember if it was her autobiography or somewhere, it was an interview. She was actually pissing herself laughing. She just could not keep a straight face with Sellers at that time, at that scene. So Blake Edwards kept it in. And then, you know, he goes into the office and he kind of wrecks the office and then listens in to Catherine Shell and David Lodge on the phone, but making a fake sort of plan and stuff. That's the great, the, I mean, it's, it's all good, don't get me wrong, but that's the best sort of running sequence for me of scenes there. With quite a borrow off Laurel and Hardy. Oh, I, immensely, I yeah. I mean, particularly the doorbell, that, mm. which, which I love. And then having tried to wrap it all back up again he just cuts it off anyway so it's going to be totally useless that to me is one of the flaws of the film in terms of the character of Clouseau because there's too much knowing laughter at him but the principal characters are all so much aware of Clouseau and his foibles and there is open laughter and that changes the essence of the Clouseau character for me. Well, it changes the dynamic, doesn't it? I find the bits where Catherine Shell is doing her sort of laugh aside, I actually find those quite irritating because I, I think they break a cardinal rule in a weird way. Does that make sense? Yeah, they break the drama of the former films. The, the former films have had that bedrock construction. They've had a plot. It's akin to canned laughter. The laughter should be coming from us as mm. the audience, not from the other characters. But then we've just admitted in terms of a plot, there isn't as such a plot. It is a series to, to, to hang the gags on. You know, and she laughs at him when they're in the discotheque as well, when he's trying to dance and he makes a complete fool of himself. Christopher Plummer doesn't laugh at him. She's seeing through him because one time he's trying to chat her up, the other time he's coming around, he's, it's completely obvious he's making a, an idiot of himself. So I forgive her for that. And I think that actually that adds an, a nice 
side to the film. I think it's funny that that was kept in. It's like a football match of a film. It is a, a film of two halves. You've got these wonderful sequences, and I love them, particularly the initial staging of the robbery, the theft of the panther. That is dramatic, cinematic, mm. tense. It's wonderfully staged. And then Edwards and Sellers get together and they just wildly indulge themselves in the slapstick. And I, it's not that the jokes aren't funny all the time. It's just that the gags are relentless. It's gag after gag after mm. gag. And you barely get time to get a proper laugh or you barely get time to draw your breath. But I think some of the straight dramatic sequences in this film say to me, Blake Edwards should have directed a 007 movie. Is it possible that one of the reasons we're saying perhaps it doesn't flow as well as the first two, is this a result of something that was going to be a television series? Does that partly explain the fact that it is a little bit more broken up? If bits were written for a TV series that then got rejected and made it into the film, you can see that would be the case, yes. Yeah, because what you're essentially looking at is more or less a sketch format, isn't it, Jazz? With mm. the things, five or ten minutes, some of them are quite effective, some of them aren't. And it, it's interesting to see if that did arise out of the TV concept. The escape from the museum, for me, is one of the great sequences, partly because, A, it's very dramatic, as much as already said, but the comedy almost comes naturally. So you've got the roof guard who's knocked unconscious by the slamming door, and as soon as he's recovered, someone else slams the door. And that's actually really, really funny within a dramatic framework. That's a good little click, that trick. You don't feel like you're being hit over the head with it like some of the gags later on. Isn't slapstick supposed to hit you over the head or smack you straight in the face? That's the whole point of it, isn't it? I know that lots of the gags are repeats. You know, he's in the hotel room with Catherine Shell and he leans on the drinks trolley and it falls away, which is almost a sort of repeat of when he's in a Dreyfus's office and he goes to touch the globe and it spins away from him and he falls on the floor in one of the previous movies. That's kind of the nature of what slapstick is. This is the thing, but like I say, the bang, 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 bang machine gun nature of it doesn't always allow for the laughs that the material deserves. I think what we do have in the way of humour here, which is far better than the previous one, is we've got a lot more verbal humour. We've still got the visual gags, but we do have an awful lot of verbal ones as well. We've got a lot more of Clouseau's strange pronunciation of things, whether it's minky or room or whatever else. I do enjoy things like follow that car and the guy just runs after the car. Or do you know the way to the Palace Hotel? Yes. And the guy walks off. The Palace Hotel is a cracker and that's where it should stop. You shouldn't move on to another gag for a few seconds. That one sinks really well. And there are some little gems like the brilliant bit that where Cato suddenly emerges from the freezer. That's a wonderful bit of comedy. And again, Mancini plays his part in that because, of course, as soon as Clouseau goes into his apartment, we've got Oriental music playing. We're being warned what's going to happen. But of course, the last place you expect is him emerging from the freezer, isn't it? There are some lovely bits in terms of what we've talked about in the pods previously, the ITC action adventure stuff. There are some lovely little touches of that sort of thing in here as well. A lot of that comes down to Mancini and the music, like the initial raid sequence, the music drives the sequence because there's no dialogue. And there's some lovely stuff like when Catherine Shell's character Claudine arrives at the airport to be picked yeah. up by David Lodge. That is a beautiful little sequence. 
the image, the music work together. And that's almost like it was in the early 70s ITC film television series, like The Persuaders or Zoo Gang, isn't it? Or it could that's be in Return that... of the Saint. It works that well. It's just such a Persuaders feel. And like when they arrive on the train, as the train pulls in, you get that nice little Mancini theme and things open up so much when you come onto location. And there's some great location stuff in this film. The street scene at the start where the blind guy is the watch out for the robbery, you know, that all of those little location sequences are just fab. That's a scene that works superbly on every level because I was re-watching it the other day and you've got half an eye on what's going on in the bank, mm. half an eye on the minky and the lookout, the whole conversation. And you've almost got two scenarios playing against each other, which then come together when... Obviously, Cluso knocks the bank manager out. Yeah, it's brilliant, that sequence. I can remember when I first watched it, you didn't realise it is well-constructed in terms of it's a slow burn sequence. You suddenly realise something else is going on behind the accordion player. So I do think the sets are really great in this. There's obviously the hotel set. There's a museum set that we talked about. Obviously, that's a location somewhere, but there must be some set work there as well. That's all beautifully constructed. And even like Clouseau's apartment, I don't think there's a bad set here at all. I'm going to be ridiculous here and question realism. And I don't know how why I'm questioning realism in a <laughs> film like The Return. But Clouseau is now back to being a bobby on the beat. And he's got one of the largest Parisian pads I've ever seen. I can promise you, having lived in France, you've got to be very, very wealthy to have a large apartment anywhere in central Paris. And it's just room after room after room. He obviously got a nice little bonus out of his divorce settlement from Mrs. Mm. Clouseau. Yeah, and maybe it was cheap and cheerful back in those days. The sets are lovely. I mean, the Salamander Club, that could just be straight out of The Spy Who Loved Me. That is mm. such a beautiful setting, whether it's a location or a set. The production designer, Peter Mullins, is one of our stronger ITC connections in this movie because he worked on Sword of Freedom, William Tell and The Invisible Man. Yeah. And the sets really do make a lot of the film. When we were mentioning, obviously, Cato coming out the freezer, what do you guys make of what they've done in this film, which is to do the slow-mo with the fights? Does that no. add to the humour? Is it over the top? I can't quite decide. I'm neither here nor there with that. You know, it's not one of those things, the first rewatch suddenly jumped out on me. Suddenly there's that almost just his face coming towards mm. you and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's almost like his face is going to come through the screen at you. I wasn't really bothered by that. It didn't make any difference to me to the movie, but I can see why they did it. If I'd been the editor, I'd have either trimmed the sequence or slightly speeded up the, the, the drag on the slow motion, because it, it does seem to be a little interminable. And then you've got the classic ITC thing of you cut to a very obvious stunt double. But then at, at this point, Peter had been so poorly, he could barely run that sort of risk. Clouseau is quite ruthless with the fights, isn't he? In the sense that he's quite happy to ignore all the rules and at the end he's going to knock Cato unconscious, whatever, and then deliver that sort of flippant, almost 007 line, you know, your fly's undone and so, my friend, are you. He's quite a dirty fighter, really, I suppose you'd say, because he always waits until Cato's half relaxed and bang, bang, bang. 
I suppose, you know, we all know what's coming there, don't we? But I don't mind. I, I look forward to those Cato moments because I know they're a set piece and we know what's going to happen, but they're always enjoyable. And, and it doesn't matter how many times you see them. They're, they're always great to sort of rewatch and have a laugh again at them. I think the end one, the Japanese one, is absolutely inspired. Getting Burt Cook into drag. In the background, you've got the Avengers stunt lady, Sid Child, as one of the other waitresses. That is brilliant. But the only sort of Cato dilemma in the modern thing is references to, like, blowing his little yellow skin off. That might be uncomfortable for some people these days. I mean, I do love the gag that he's getting a fortune cookie in a Japanese restaurant. And that's what brilliant. makes it suspicious. I mean, that's yeah. just lovely. Great comedy. There are so many little touch points. I loved it when I was a kid. On reviewing it, I've been a bit disconcerted by the relentless pace of the gags and some of the in obvious indulgence of the director and the star. There's a big problem. I would have hated to have been the production manager on a film like this. At the end of the day, the production manager will literally take a tally of the film reels used in the camera. When you look at what turned up on things like the Dennis Norden yeah. outtake show, the amount of overrun footage each day must have been an absolute nightmare. And for me personally, I'd rather Edwards had pulled it in a bit and used that amount of the budget more on screen. Yeah, there's tons of that, isn't there? I'm, I remember like it always being a staple of something like it will be all right on the night. And if you look on YouTube, there's plenty of outtakes from this film. I don't know, maybe we're spoiled or maybe we think that, you know, I quite like the outtakes, but you're right. We are dealing with a real one-off, aren't we, in Peter Sellers? So in a sense, I guess you've almost got to run with the almost madness at times to also get the vintage Peter Sellers. Mm. I mean, I even look at those photos of him and Roger Moore messing about by a swimming pool that I'm sure you've both seen. Mm. And I think he's like a little boy, isn't he? Like Burke Quark said, he could be brilliant or he could be god-awful. But the trouble was he was always indulged. And it was basically the box office returns. You had Peter Sellers larking about. On the next film, he adds God knows how much time to the shooting schedule mm. and at least $4 million to the budget with his faffing about. But when you look at it in terms of the returns and you're picking up $45 million in a 1970s box office back then, this is why it happened. And they were both pretty self-indulgent characters. The problem with them reacting to each other was probably because they were so similar. Because mm -hmm. Blake was self-indulgent. Peter was definitely self-indulgent. Anthony Simmons, who directed him in one of the movies just before this, The Optimists of Nine Elms, he said, Peter did some wonderful sequences, some wonderful gags, setting up stuff to make the crew laugh this sort of ad-lib stuff that he used to do. When the set was all lit and all ready to go, he'd drift off into a sequence of his own. And he said it was marvellous, it was fun, it was entertaining for the crews, but it didn't fit into the movie you were making. And he said, I got the impression that it was a similar case on the return of the Pink Panther set. I think we should probably talk about those opening animated titles because obviously where we talked about the animated TV series, there's a clear nod to that in those opening titles. I mean, I think they're fantastic with the little Pink Panther character itself running through doors and, and Cluzo after him and shutting the doors and all the names in lights like on a big old-fashioned cinema outside and stuff. They're just great. The animation on that is superb. 
they're really inventive. They're a great hook for geeing up the audience, I think. In this one, there are so many film references. You've got the Frankenstein sequence where everything lights up, which is a beautiful piece of design, I think, when they do that fully lit screen. You've got a tribute to Busby Barclay, the sort of dance routines when he goes tapping up the stairs that yeah. form the cameraman's name. You've got the Panthers swimming along, doing an obvious tribute to Esther Williams, the old 40s, 50s swimming star in Hollywood. It's really good fun. It really sets things up well. You've mentioned jazz, the actors' names and the cinematic lights. You've got the audience going in for what I presume is the premiere with the limousines outside. It's sort of referring to itself as well. For me, a huge part of the magic of the Pink Panther films is the animated titles and the music. Is it worth mentioning here, and it is a piece of trivia, that that piece of iconic music, which became a big hit and almost won Mancini and Oscar for the first Pink Panther, that wasn't designed originally to be the main title's music. That was meant to be Sir Charles Lytton's little pieces whenever he's gone into thief mode. And when Mancini found out that there were going to be animated titles for the first movie, and he looked at these frames of the Pink Panther tiptoeing around and he thought, ah, so Charles Lytton's music will be perfect for that. I mean, I particularly love the, for want of a better phrase, the Hoover parrot bulb sauna sketch. And I think you've got you know, a wonderful sequence there with the fabric painting being hoovered up, the parrot being hoovered up and being very annoyed by it all, the bulbs popping every few seconds. And the sauna part for me is just hilarious because you've got this bellboy now involved who, if I remember rightly, Clouseau has told him earlier, if you carry on this good work, you'll become a bellman. And they're both sliding around. But then to me, what really makes it funny is that obviously Catherine Schell's character is sliding around when she goes in there. For me, that's where slapstick works so well. And you can imagine Chaplin almost in a similar scene. The one that really caught me on the funny bone was, again, back to the vacuum cleaner sketch. The bit where he, as you say, Rodney, where he vacuums up the picture. But I think in his frustration, it is absolutely bloody inspired to pick up the flowers out of the vase and put, put them in the picture frame to try to replicate the picture because he knows he can't fix it. And the other wonderful point, you look at that vacuum cleaner guy, who does he remind you of? He's almost an exact replica of Albert Finney as Poirot in Murder on the Orient Express. He's even got the curly moustache. And I, I think that's a little gag on Edwards and Sellers' part. Some of sort of action adventure sequences are really quite like some of the ITC series, though, because I've been thinking about it and like the whole sort of break in right at the start of the movie after the titles of Rum, where they break into the museum. That really reminds me quite a bit of Room in the Basement of Danger Man, of all that sort of shot at night time where he's all in black and stuff and shimmying up drain pipes. There's quite a few ITC action and adventure type things going on within this movie. You've got the classic, always appears in any action adventure series from ITC, the classic detour when the truck is diverted with Christopher Plummer's character in it. You've got that lovely sequence where they take him out into the middle of nowhere. He's about to be ambushed, but he beats the ambush. There's some lovely high angle photography. Again, very what we've become used to with the action adventure shows. 
in terms of ITC, you've got some classic stereotyping. You've got Peter Arn as Shaki, the <laughs> chief of police. There's nobody who could do smooth villainy like Peter Arn and that lovely low-key speech at the end where he's, he's going to come and shoot Lord and Lady Lytton. You've got the fat man, Eric Polman. I mean, in every ITC series you've ever seen him in, he's always had that moral ambiguity you know and when you first see him you never know which side he's on and, and and it is played to perfection here so i think there's a lot of connective tissue between the itc produced film and the itc produced tv shows you've got the whole mini casablanca thing in the salamander sequence and you've actually got clouseau as guy Godbois when he's trying to chat up catherine shell in the <laughs> disco he's actually saying that he is looking at you kid like yeah. Well, he does. He thinks he's quite cool, doesn't he? He thinks yeah. he's a Roger Moore sexually desirable action <laughs> hero. He does. Yeah, even though half his moustache has clearly disappeared. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we should probably talk about the critical response and the box office success. Now, I was reading about the launch for this and Lou Grade set up this huge summer bash in Gestad and it cost him quarter of a million pounds. He'd invited the likes of obviously Sellers and that, but he had Julie Andrews, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, Henry Mancini and his orchestra played at this launch and 250 press people from 18 different countries were flown in for this and they all had like presentational suitcases with things like Gucci scarves and ties and perfume, Adidas sportswear, jackets, Moe champagne, pink, of course, and watches from Fortis. And Lou made this incredible speech where he sort of said, I have made 10 pictures in the past 18 months that have all been successful. None of them have lost money and they won't lose money. I ought to be on the all-winner show of New Faces. And that's obviously a reference to his ATV New Faces show. It was no expense spared to really push this film with the journalists. You know, it seems quite amazing at the time that he did that. The thing is, of course, it's ever Lou. This is probably pre-funded because don't forget, he's already sold these two Blake Edwards movies to the American Networks which was quite a sort of radical move back then, putting on a sale before you'd even got them into the theatres. There's a lovely little actor's one-upmanship story relating to this big bash. It's from Victor Spinetti. Now, Spinetti said, at great expense, they reproduced the interior of the Palace Hotel reception back in the studio because he was meant to have several other sequences with Clouseau, him as the desk clerk and Clouseau in all sorts of catastrophes the room on fire, the room flooding, which we saw eventually in the bathroom sequence. Spinetti points up that these sequences were actually made, but in final film, they didn't make the cut. So Spinetti obviously was a little upset about this, and he went to the big party that you've just mentioned that Lou threw. He was a personal friend of the Burtons, which is how come the Burtons attended the party. And he went to their chalet bemoaning the fact that his scenes had been cut, and they were quite angry. They were saying, oh, Peter got you cut. So... It was basically a case of, right, we'll have him. We'll come down and we'll attend the bash as your guests and we'll show the bugger, basically. So they did this and there was a big 
fuss with sellers because Elizabeth didn't like the volume that the band were playing and there was a bit of an, an altercation, but Spinetti stuck by Richard and Elizabeth. And so, of course, the next day, all the headlines come out, all the photos come out, and all you can see is Burton and Taylor. That's all the press were interested in. Victor was tagging along with them. He wasn't even featured. And then we have this Royal Command performance, don't we? Sellers was, to quote Mancini, between wives. And so when he received his invitation, it was just for him, not with a partner, which annoyed him. So he didn't attend it. And Henry Mancini says in his book that Prince Charles made a bit of a joke of it, took on his most princely voice, making fun of himself and said, the next time I shall command Peter Sellers to be there. That was the mercurial character of Sellers. One thing I got from reading Mancini's book was he considered Peter Sellers to be a genius, maybe a tortured genius, but he said his voices were so good you'd be in a hotel lift with him with some other people. The other people would get out and Peter Sellers would carry on their conversation in their voices and Mancini was turning around looking for them. I was going to say the film made a lot of money going by this book. At the time of writing it, it had made... 17 million dollars but i think smudge you came in and said it it grossed something like 35 million or something. 30 million plus essentially this was the film that lou gray took back to the itc acc board and this was what laid the foundations for as you say that wider move into film production it was such a ridiculously good return and, it, and again it was why they could afford to let sellers indulge himself yeah because it only cost two and a half million dollars to make at the time Ironically, in a way, this is the worst possible thing, because this is a film that everyone had told him you shouldn't make, people won't get on, it won't make money, he's made it, and he probably thought he could walk on water after this. Yeah, I mean, this is part of that book where it says, armed with the success of this movie is when Lou basically had a, a board meeting and said, right, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, and... Ultimately, that led to a sequence of events that would become his downfall within ITV, ATV and ACC. Yeah, unfortunately, film wasn't his familiar medium. He could run rings around anybody with television. He could do deals, this, that and the other. He knew what sold. He seemed to know precisely what the public taste was. But then film wasn't his medium and unfortunately it showed. I thoroughly enjoy this film. I watched it two or three times even before we fully committed to this podcast and then I've watched it two or three times since. I mean, it goes by so quickly. It's a riot of laughter for me. And I I just think, like, go with it if you've got 90 minutes because it's not very long. Sit down and just let yourself go away and and really enjoy the fun of it because at the end of the day, it's a film that's supposed to make you laugh. It's not a serious film at all. Just let yourself be indulged by the madness of Peter Sellers and his brilliance. This is how well that film moves, because you said 90 minutes. It is actually just shy of two hours. The one thing for it, because I've said that the gags are bang, bang, relentless. The one thing for it is it's really paced well. There's some nice nuggets of humour. 
but the action adventure sequences really stand out to me. I, I don't think you could get a better opening sequence than that robbery in a 007 movie of the period. If you're prepared to indulge yourself with Blake and Peter's self-indulgence, it's an absolute riot. It does move fast. And on the whole, if it was on, I couldn't turn it off. I agree with both of you. I love the verbal gags. I love the visual gags. And there are probably loads we ever mentioned, like the revolving door in the hotel. I love the fact that it is a wink at silent movies, which they both had a great love for. And I have a huge love for silent movies. And I do love the fact that you have got that sort of ITC style action adventure and this wonderful slapstick. And even though some of the humour maybe works better than other bits, I think it's such a wonderful watch. I think you have to be in the right mood. That might sound a strange thing to say, but I've watched this film once when I perhaps wasn't in the right mood and sat there and thought, oh, it's okay. But if I sat down wanting to be entertained and wanting to laugh, I've actually cried once watching the parrot bulb sauna scene. I actually, I was in tears. That bulb sequence, that seems very sort of Laurel and Hardy to me. And another little nugget that tickled me was the fact that at least one of the vans goes into the swimming pool. It's an Acme van, like the um, Coyote in Looney Tunes. That did rather tickle me. One thing that I would say is this is crying out to be properly digitally restored because I had the DVD of it and I thought, oh, I'll buy the Blu-ray. And to be honest, the Blu-ray is hardly any better. We've been spoilt with our podcast where we've been looking at ITC shows like Randall and Hopkirk and Department S and Man in a Suitcase and Persuaders, but they've all come out on Blu-ray and they look sensational. That's the one thing that lets this movie down. It is in desperate need of a proper restoration and a proper Blu-ray. That would be my only thing. But anyway, it's been a fantastic chat with you guys again. Thank you so much for joining me on the ITC Entertain the World podcast. And thanks for listening. And we'll see you again in the near future. So from me, Jazz, it's thanks and goodbye. Yeah, I'm from Minky One. Goodbye. And from Minky number two, it's goodbye as well. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to ITC Entertain the World podcast with Jazz Wiseman, Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. It was a bitter and twisted production for the morning after. Thank you.